Welcome, everyone. I'm so glad you're here tonight. My name is Misty Denman, and I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and there is no place I'd rather be to start this holiday weekend than right here with you. And I know because it is the beginning of a holiday weekend, there's lots of places you could be tonight other than here. So just thanks for being here, and thanks for your faithfulness, and it's fun to see you here, lots of you in patriotic clothes and having ice cream and Um, Just a great way to start the weekend. I have two boys who are 10 and 12, and so 4th of July ranks right up there, almost with Christmas for us as far as our favorite holidays. And there is only one reason for that, and that is fireworks. And I'm not talking about the fireworks that happen tomorrow night in Fort Worth, but we live outside of city limits, which means that we get to do fireworks in our driveway and in our street and everywhere. So... My oldest turned 12 at the end of April, and he has saved his birthday money for the last two months uh, so that the day the fireworks stand could open, he could go buy fireworks, and we did do that. Um, That's something that he and his dad, my husband, do together, and I just am not really so much a part of that, but every day for the last week, right around dusk, he's gone out, um, done his little fireworks. He usually gets those really small ones because you can get a lot of those for not very much money. Um, And I'm happy to say that we have all of our fingers and toes and eyeballs still. Um, And that tomorrow night's finale will be even better than the little ones we've done all along. But um, I think that the dogs in our neighborhood will be most glad when the 4th of July is over. (laughs) So that they don't think they're getting shot at every night at dusk. I've kind of felt sorry for them. Before we study these last two words of love from the cross and those moments before Jesus gives up his spirit tonight, let's look back at what the scriptures record having happened in those last six hours before now. And I was just thinking that when it takes five weeks to study six hours of history, you know that was a momentous six hours. You'll remember that each of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each give an account of that final day of Jesus' life. And some of what we um, know of and what we read happen in multiple gospel accounts, and some only happen in one. So it really takes looking at all four of those gospels together to get a complete picture of what that last day was like and what those seven words of love from the cross were. One of the reasons I, it's one of the reasons I love that tan piece of paper, that chart that we've had each week. I hope you'll hold on to that because that gives a great way to look at all seven of those things, where you find them in the gospel accounts, and then also some of those other events that were happening and where they fit into those seven things. So hold on to that if you can. Um, I've found it to be a really helpful tool. Remember that that first cry of Jesus from the cross was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Jesus' prayer reveals his astonishing love and his perfect forgiveness for even the worst of sinners. And it reminds us that we should pray for and love those um, who hurt us in the same way that Jesus did. That second word from Jesus was, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And in those words, we learned that because of Jesus' great love for the world, he offers the free gift of salvation for any of us who will believe, pay the full penalty for our sins. Sometime after that conversation with the thief beside him, Jesus gives a glimpse of how much he values both his earthly family and his spiritual family when he looks down at Mary from the cross and looks at his cousin John and says, woman, behold your son, behold your mother. We learned that he has great um, protection and a plan for our families. Last week we studied Jesus' words of agony from the cross and as that supernatural darkness fell over the land 
And Jesus bore the punishments for the sins of all mankind, past, present, and future. And he used the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I thirst. And we learn that even in the midst of his terrible suffering, still Jesus held tight to God the Father. And he never wavers in his trust and his choice to take those sins on himself because of his great love for us. And now we're coming very near to those final moments of the cross. And the last two cries that Jesus makes from the cross are words of great victory. So with that in mind, let's open our Bibles to John 19. And if you will, follow along with me. I'm going to read verses 28 through 30 of John 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, if you would, you can keep your finger there if you want to. Turn back to the book of Luke, and let's look at Luke 23. And let's read Luke 23, starting in 44 and going through 49. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching those things. So we really need to put these two passages from John and Luke together to see the complete picture of what happened in those last moments on the cross. It is finished, and Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Come very soon after he says, I thirst, and he drank that wine vinegar to, to wet his parched mouth and throat. Then these last two statements were probably shouted out very close to one another in those final moments right before Jesus died. So what does Jesus mean when he says it is finished? Um, There have been volumes written about just those three words because those three words carry such foundational meaning to our faith. In fact, if I was studying, I came across one theologian who said, it is finished are the most important three words ever spoken in human history. And I can tell you my first reaction was, Are you kidding me? Who wants to have to teach the most important words ever spoken in human history? But here I am. When Jesus spoke, it was actually the single Greek word tetelestai. So I guess that was the one most important word in human history as he actually spoke it. It translates into our three English words, it is finished. And there are sort of layers of meaning and nuance to that word. So let's look at some of those to sort of get a full picture of what Jesus meant when he said it is finished. Were you around Palestine in Jesus' day? It was a word, tetelestai, that you might have heard a farmer use when he had maybe a baby goat or a lamb born on his farm, and it was just that perfect specimen, perfect in size and shape and form, and he might look at that baby lamb and exclaim, tetelestai, it is finished. That is the perfect work of nature. An artist might use that word had he made the perfect clay pot and nothing needed to be added or taken away from what he had created. It was perfect the way it was. It is finished, a whole and complete work. 
Nothing needed to be added or taken away. It was perfect. But the meaning of it is finished that gives us the most vivid picture of what Jesus meant when he accomplished that work on the cross is the word tetelestai. It was, it was used in the Greek business world. In a business transaction in Jesus' day, one would use that word tetelestai to signify a payment made in full. And we know that to be true because there have been archaeological digs that have happened around the time and place where Jesus lived. And we've actually found um, papyrus receipts, essentially, that show a bill of sale with that word tetelestai written across the top, signifying that the buyer and the seller have squared up and that payment has been made in full. So keep that picture in your mind, most especially tonight, that picture of a payment made in full or a debt incurred and paid in full as we go on with our study. So what is that debt that Jesus paid in full for us? It's that debt that every one of us has incurred against a holy and perfect God because we've all sinned and chosen our own way. We've talked about that several times during our study. The price to be paid for that sin and rebellion is death and fellowship between God and man was broken from the time of Adam because of our sin. Because of our sin, there was in the Old Testament a system of animal sacrifices that was in place. And among other things, that was a a very explicit acknowledgement of man's sin and um, an acknowledgement that the penalty for sin is death. But animal sacrifices never were a permanent solution for man's sin and separation from God. And we know this to be true from Hebrews 10, uh, 5 and 6, if you'll look with me on your verse sheet. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. So for many of us, this is very familiar truth that we're going over here. But for a moment, put yourself back at the cross, at that scene, and just be astonished for the very first time of understanding what it was that Jesus did, of what our great need was, and and just sort of be, um, I guess, surprised anew at what it means that Jesus died for our sins. Here he is, somehow both fully man and fully God, taking the punishment of the world upon himself. And then here he is crying out with this conviction, it is finished. He was the perfect sacrifice, having paid our debt in full. It is finished and there is nothing left to add. So how do we respond to such an overwhelming act of love and a sacrifice? I think we believe, we trust that Jesus Jesus did live that sinless life that he chose to go to the cross and die our death for us. Look with me at Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I think we could spend our entire lives studying and contemplating and meditating on these truths and still not exhaust them all. And that is why I think it's so good, no matter how long we've been believers, no matter how long it is we've walked with the Lord, to go back to the cross over and over again and to worship Jesus in a fresh and a new way. 
And if the cross ever begins to feel commonplace to you, and I will confess to you there have been times where um, when I have either read or, come, or had teachings on the cross, it did feel commonplace, and I sort of glaze over mentally. Let's confess that, and let's ask God to give us a renewed heart of worship. Read Romans eight or 5, 8 through 10 with me. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. That is a verse to go back to and remember what it means for it to be finished. Look back with me now at Luke 23:44 and 45. And I actually put that on your verse sheet in case you're not there in your Bible anymore. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The curtain that Jesus is talking about here was inside the temple in Jerusalem. It was deep inside of that temple, and it was a curtain that separated the holy place from the inner holy of holies. And that holy of holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, and it is where God's spirit dwelt. It was not just any curtain. It wasn't like a curtain you might find at Target or Bed Bath & Beyond, but it was this great, magnificent creation um, created with special instructions by God. It was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and the the cloth was actually, the fabric was actually um, woven into the width of a man's palm, if you can imagine that. I can't even imagine how that would have been made, or can you imagine what it took to lift that up and put it on whatever it hung from and how it would move? Because of the strength of that curtain, Theologians do not think that there was any way that a natural event like an earthquake could have caused that curtain to tear in two from top to bottom. That curtain was a place where only one priest once a year would have gone behind, and he would have offered a sacrifice there on behalf of the sins of the people. And now that curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. And the moments around when Jesus says, it is finished. It seems as though this was a supernatural act of God in the exact same way that that darkness that covered the land was a supernatural act of God and not something that would have been explained um, by an eclipse or something natural. So in those moments surrounding Jesus completing his task of dying for the sins of the world and crying out, it is finished. That curtain separating God's spirit from the rest of humanity is torn from top to bottom. And from now on, all people have access to the living God through the blood of Jesus. It's this beautiful physical picture of what Jesus is accomplishing on the cross in that moment. Look with me at Hebrews 10:19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. If we will cling to these promises of God, there will always be a reason for joy in our lives. If we will draw near to him daily, obey him fully, um, and know the one who has loved us so fully, I think no matter where we are, what hardships we face, what disappointments we face, there will always be room for joy. Look with me at Romans 8:38. For I am sure 
that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's hold fast to that. That one thing that matters most in this world, our relationship with Jesus, cannot be taken from us. Everything else can, but that one thing that matters most cannot. Praise God. Our salvation is complete and secure. Jesus said it is finished. Let's rejoice in that. So here's another truth to cling to in light of the fact that it is finished. If it is finished, as Jesus said it was, and it is, there's no room for shame in our lives. Sometimes even those of us who have been believers for a long time who really have the Spirit of God living in us and know we've been forgiven still carry around some sense of guilt and shame. We don't have to do that. When Jesus cried out, it's finished, he meant it. There's nothing you've done, either before or after you trusted Christ, that was not paid for on the cross. Read 1 John and Romans 8.1 with me. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then along with Romans 8.1, which if you've been around for Christ Chapel for any length of time, you've heard before, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think we just need to simply take Jesus at his word on this. Sometimes it seems too easy to be true that all we have to do is believe by faith and all of those sins are forgiven, those ones that maybe only we know about. But it wasn't easy for Jesus He did the hard work because he loves us. Hold on to that truth. So let that guilt and shame go and leave that there at the foot of the cross. And then if you find that creeping back into your spirit, I would say take it back to the foot of the cross again. And then if you find it there again, take it back. Take it back to the foot of the cross as many times as you need to because that is what Jesus wants for you. So now that the work of redemption is complete, there's only one thing for Jesus left to do. And he does that one thing now. Listen again to Luke 23:46. just that one verse. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I think the first thing that we notice here is that Jesus again addresses God as Father. Those first words he spoke from the cross were, Father, forgive them. That was a prayer of forgiveness. And here in his final word, another prayer. And Jesus, just as Jesus cried out in that loud voice, it's finished. He speaks out this final declaration in that same shout. This is not the weak whisper of a dying man whose life is ebbing away from him, but it is the confident prayer of a Savior who is purposely communicating his choice to entrust himself to his Father. As Jesus lived, so he died. The intense suffering he's endured in the cro- at the cross and in the hours before that never caused him to doubt his father's love or his purpose for him. Every act of Jesus in the Gospels records Jesus very purposely going about his business, the business of the father, um, doing everything that the father had for him to do, and purposefully and continually abiding in the father. He chose constant fellowship and constant trust. And here in this final prayer, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, we just find nothing but the same. His trust in the Father, his dependence on the Father, his love, his obedience, his looking forward to going home again. This final cry is a confident and, and, and triumphant distillation of everything that Jesus was about in his time on earth. 
Some of your translations, by the way, will say that Jesus commended his spirit to God. And that word committed has the exact same meaning here as committed. And Matthew 27, 50 tells us that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He yielded his spirit. He commended it. He gave it up to God. This was his last willful act on earth. When we read the Gospels, Jesus is portrayed as a man of prayer. He prayed for those around him. He prayed with those around him. He got off and prayed alone. He taught his disciples to pray. He uh, prayed in total submission to the Father's will. And he died in that same way that he lived, with a prayer on his lips, abiding and trusting himself to the love of his Father. And would there be any better way for us to live as well? As Jesus lived and he died abiding in his God, we can be women who live abiding in our God as well, that very same God. And what a glorious thing it would be if we were known for women who trusted and depended on our God. And what might we expect the results to be if we do trust and depend on God and communicate with him in that constant way like the Father, or like Jesus did with his Father? I think we can expect to walk through our trials and our disappointments and our betrayals and pain comforted and strengthened by that certainty of God's care and his grace in our life, of his good provision for us. I think we can rest in the goodness of God, knowing that he sees all, he's all-powerful, he cares more than we can imagine, and he has a plan for us even when we cannot see it. Like Jesus, we can hold on to that promise of a future and eternity as well, where suffering will be over. The book of Acts records the stoning death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Now, Stephen was a man to be known, full of God's spirit, full of grace and God's power. Let's look at this one sentence about Stephen in Acts 7:59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen hadn't been a Christian very long. He was a man a lot like us. He was trying to follow God. He was, uh, you know, just obeying and learning and trusting in the same way we were. And here in these last moments of his life, when the rubber meets the road, he is able to cry out in, in that very same spirit that Jesus did. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I love that we see here a picture of a man who was able to walk in the ways of the Lord, who trusted in the living God in the midst of whatever circumstance he found himself in, and this most crushing of experiences, in fact. Stephen lived and died by the truth of Second Timothy 1.12. On your verse sheet, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So to the extent that we can commit ourselves to prayer and to God's word, we are able to fully trust in God in the midst of whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, even if it's not um, hopefully the circumstances that Stephen found himself in. Into your hands I commit my spirit is also scripture prayed back to God. Jesus' last words come from Psalm 31, 5, and that is a powerful psalm of trust. Go home and read that whole thing sometime over, the fall, over this holiday weekend. It is a great psalm. So I've got on your verse sheet verses 3 through 5 that I want us to look at. Jesus only spoke loud verse 5, but I feel confident that he had much more than that one single verse hidden in his heart. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. 
into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. This was a psalm of David, and it was also used in Jewish evening prayers. So those who heard Jesus cry out this psalm from the cross would have been very familiar and known with that verse and known where it came from. For all of his life, what Jesus said and what he did reflected who he really was. There was no deception in Jesus. So it's so in keeping with his character, I think, that Jesus chooses this psalm of trust and worship to pray back to the Father as he returns to him. And just as Jesus was a man of prayer during his lifetime, he was a man of the word. The gospel writers record more than 30 separate times where Jesus either quoted the Old Testament or referred to it. He taught the word in the synagogues in such a way that everybody who heard him um, understood there was something unique and different about his teaching and his understanding. He used the word of God to um, combat the lies of Satan and those 40 days in the wilderness. He used the scripture to explain and to guide both his daily life and how he taught um, to everybody during his public ministry. And his love for the word, I think, was a real and bone-deep thing and not just... um, what he thought he might have to say because he was God's son. And I think that we can know that is true for sure because a man's last words are important and Jesus' last words were really important. And of all of the things that the Savior could have said in his dying words, he chooses words straight from the book of Psalms. It's really remarkable. Scripture and prayer sustained Jesus the man. Think about how set apart Jesus' life must have been, I think from his earliest days. Can you imagine how um, when he was playing in the neighborhood with his brothers and his sisters and his cousins and his friends and they're all doing things they're not supposed to do and provoking each other and lying about where they've been and what he's doing that he's not any part of that. I can so clearly imagine one of Jesus' brothers getting in trouble and saying, you never spank Jesus? How come I'm the only one that gets in trouble here? He never gets spanking. You must love him more than you love me. And I can imagine there must have been one of those kids in the crowd who made it his mission to provoke Jesus into doing something he shouldn't be doing. I get that from um, the experiences I've had with children in my day. I can um, imagine also as a young man the conversations that Jesus wasn't a part of, the actions that Jesus wasn't a part of. I think in many ways he was just very set apart from the world. And from a human perspective, it sounds like a very lonely life when I look at it in that way. But I don't think that he was lonely. Jesus always abided and had his, that, that perfect relationship with his father. Not once in the Gospels do you ever find a place where Jesus looks to something other than the father for comfort or for a way to sustain him. And we can't forget as we study those events around the cross that though Jesus was killed by a man, it was entirely of his own choosing and for his own purposes. Nothing happened to him that was out of his control. Nothing happened to him that wasn't part of his plan. He chose his death because he knew it was the Father's perfect plan for the redemption of mankind. And he desired that we would be delivered from sin and death because he loves us. So as we finish our study of these seven statements that Jesus made from the cross, and we leave him here in these moments of death on Friday... We must look ahead to Sunday morning because we know that Jesus was in the grave, but on that third day, he rose from the dead, conquering death 
and proving beyond a shadow of a doubt his claim to be the Messiah. Look with me on your verse sheet at that very last verse in Matthew 28, 5 and 6. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. It was God's plan from the beginning to send his son to die for us so that we could be redeemed and restored back to him. His plan is complete, and Jesus is risen from the dead. Redemption is complete. And Jesus is once again seated at the right hand of God, and it is finished. In light of these words of love from the cross, it seems to me as we finish this study tonight that the only fitting response to these words of love would be um, worship. So I'm going to close this in prayer, and then Drew Hill is going to come and lead us in a worship song called At the Cross. It's a song that we've been singing at the West Campus, and it's been very meaningful to me in the last couple of months as we have um, been studying from this study. So let me pray for us, and then let's worship, and then let's go in peace and enjoy our holiday weekend. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your gift of love. I thank you so much for the cross um, and for what it means to us. I, I pray that every woman here um, would understand the, the power of the cross in her own life and she would carry it with her um, tonight and through the weekend and through, su- through summer and, um, and all the days that follow. I thank you, God, um, for the gift of your son. I pray a blessing over each woman here tonight. In your holy name we pray. Amen.